Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. It's been said, leaders are readers, but what should a leader read? My guest today set out to answer that question by pulling four-star generals and admirals in the U.S. military to get their best recommendations. His name is Admiral James Stavridis. He served as the commander of U.S. Southern Command, U.S. European Command, and NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe. He now serves as dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. In his book, The Leader's Bookshelf, Admiral Stavridis explains why reading is fundamental for all leaders and provides a list of 50 books suggested by senior officers. We begin our conversation today by discussing the culture of reading amongst military officers past and present, including General James Mattis and George Patton. Admiral Steridis then shares tips on how to read more, even with the busy schedule, and how to get more out of your reading. We then dig into the list of 50 books military brass recommend the most and the lessons on leadership they provide. You're going to be adding a lot of books to your reading list after listening to this podcast, so take notes. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash leadersbookshelf. All right. Admiral James Stavridis, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Brett. So you wrote a book, co-authored a book called The Leader's Bookshelf. Obviously, you're, you're an admiral in the Navy. Uh, I'm curious, what was the genesis of this book? The book grew out of a love of books. And the way it tactically occurred was that I had completed four years as the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and my publisher, Random House, asked me to uh, do a memoir. So I did. It's called The Accidental Admiral. And then they came to me and said, okay, Admiral, now we'd like you to write a leadership book. And as you know, Brett, the world is awash in leadership books. There are far too many of them. And so what I thought I would try and do, instead of writing yet another hands-on hips, then I told the president to launch the Tomahawks, kind of book. I thought, why not take my love of books and pour it into a single volume that tries to cut through this thicket of books that make you a better leader. And hence, uh, I found a co-author and the two of us worked together uh, for a couple of years, finding books that we thought helped people become better leaders. And that is the genesis of the Leader's Bookshelf. And and the way you went about finding these books is you asked other officers in the military what their most influential book on leadership that they read. And what I was amazed is like, the breadth of the, the authors you reached out to and the, the, the diversity of books. I mean, would you say there's a culture of reading amongst military officers in the United States or even in just the world? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So think of General Jim Mattis, who's currently the Secretary of Defense. 
when he and I were working in the Pentagon together over a decade ago, he was a one-star officer. He's a bit older than I am. I was a Navy captain, but we became very close friends and exchanged book ideas constantly. In fact, if you flip over the leader's bookshelf, you'll see a very nice blurb from General Jim Mattis. I think General Mattis owns somewhere around 4,000 books. My own library is probably 5,000 books. General John Kelly, the current chief of staff in the White House, inveterate reader. And there are two reasons for that. One is that as a military officer, you actually end up with a surprising amount of time to read on airplanes uh, as you're waiting to go on an operation, as you're on a ship, in the case of a Navy admiral like me, sailing home from the Pacific. There's actually, as the saying goes about war, it's a hurry up, but wait business. And there's a lot of waiting. So, so there is time in a military career to read. And secondly, I would say because our business is so serious, that of war, that you need chances to step outside it, to refresh yourself in every dimension from fiction to nonfiction to geography to history to politics and all of those kinds of books are represented in the leader's bookshelf. And this culture of reading amongst military officers goes back even decades. I mean, you, you highlight George Patton, which a lot of people wouldn't think based on the reputation he has as being a, this sort of scholar and thinker and reader, but old blood and guts, that guy read per, you know prolifically. Oh, indeed. And all of those uh, World War II generals and admirals were enormously well-read. And and as I did more research for this book, I kept tripping over various sites where you can look at the, the library, the titles in the library of George Marshall, for example. These are officers, and many of them, that World War II generation, don't forget, didn't grow up watching television because there really wasn't much television. So they, they came out of a culture of, of reading and I think that's very much alive in the military today. I'll give you one other example of it. Each of the service chiefs, so the chief of naval operations who leads the Navy, the chief of staff of the Army who leads the Army, each of them publish lists of books that they think are useful and oriented toward the service particularly. Again, Leader's Bookshelf is an attempt to cut across all of the services and really about cutting across all dimensions of leadership. It's not a book for the military. It's a book for anyone who seeks to lead others. And why do you think reading is so fundamental for leaders, no matter what, where they're leading next? There's that saying that you, I've heard before, you know, leaders are readers. Why, why is that? I'll give you three reasons. The first is we only get one lifetime, right? But by reading, you get to dip into dozens and dozens and dozens of other lives. And so whenever you're reading, you're tapping into other experiences that you can bring to leadership. Secondly, reading refreshes the mind. It is a chance to be intimate with yourself and an author, and it gives you a chance to be away from that mindless daily 24-hour visual news cycle and to really contemplate. You should almost think of it as exercise for the mind. And then Thirdly, it's fun. It's entertaining. It's a, it's a great hobby to be able to pick up a book and jump back 200 years in history and suddenly you're sailing at sea with Lord Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar. So I think for those three reasons, leaders tend to be readers. 
So before we get into some of the books that are highlighted in the Leader's Bookshelf, you have these great chapters on how to read more, how to get more out of your reading. And I'd love to get your insights into this because now you're also a college dean, correct? I am. I'm the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where I did my own PhD back in my 20s. The Navy took me off five years of sea duty and sent me here. I was a good mariner and I could launch a Tomahawk missile, but in those days I couldn't launch an idea to save my life. And graduate school here at the Fletcher School shaped me and it made me very hungry to come back and give back to this institution, which is what I've done by becoming the dean. So yeah, let me say a word about first finding time to read. And there are little tricks of the trade that serious readers follow. One I think today is pretty obvious and it's using technology. And that is instead of hauling around four or five books, you take your Kindle or I read very effectively on my iPhone. It's just Adapting yourself to using the electronic means we have available makes you a much more efficient reader. Secondly, finding time in the course of the day to read in little chunks. And and this relates to the first point, which is that when you've got your electronic device with you, that previously dead 10 minutes waiting for a bus or jumping in or out of an airport, standing in the TSA security line, everybody's favorite activity, read. Thirdly, I think it's uh, very effective to record what you've read. And I, I would advocate having a small journal of reading that you're doing. You can maintain that electronically on the same device, but keep track of the books you're reading. I, at the end of the year, I like to total them up. I like to go back and read the notes I've taken. And that brings me to a fourth thing, which is underlining and highlighting and marginalia. Now you can do this electronically or you can do it on a paper copy of a book, but force yourself to really interact with that book. Don't don't skim through it. And then fifth and finally, not all books are great books, Brett. And so if you start a book and you're not enjoying it or not getting out of it what you'd hope to, quit. Move on to a different book. So often people say to themselves, okay, I'm going to read Dostoevsky. And then they start reading the Brothers Karamazov and they realize they hate Dostoevsky. And yet they they slug through it painfully. It becomes like scourging yourself in the Middle Ages. Recognize that there are endless books and endless choices and don't be afraid to stop if a book isn't working for you. So there's five thoughts to make you a better reader. That's great. And and your personal reading habits, are you reading multiple books at the same time and sort of switching between them in a I given week? I do, although I do limit myself to two. And as you might expect, typically I'll have one book of fiction going and one book of nonfiction going. And I find that just is a way to kind of refresh and step away from a particular scene. And I find when I come back to a book after taking a break to look at another book, I often come with fresh insight, fresh ideas, and two, however, I think is what works for me. I do know some people that will juggle more than that, my wife, for example, but two strikes me for a serious reader about the right number. And speaking of taking notes, uh, the other sort of interesting tidbit about uh, General Patton was that he would type out on note cards his notes. And I thought that was interesting. Indeed. And I know a number of people who take the note-taking piece of this to very high levels and have a file folder, either electronic or paper, on each book. 
I don't quite go that far, but I do rely on the notes that I've taken to lead me back. And if I'm doing research, for example, right now, Brett, I'm working on a book about character. You know, leadership is exerting influence over others. Character is leading yourself. It's character, I always say, is what you do when you think no one is looking. And so I've been reading a lot of biography of various individuals. And um, so as distinct from just, if you will, casual day-to-day reading, when I'm reading for a project and reading for research, then I'm taking very meticulous notes so I can get back to sections as I drive them into the book I'm working on next. So let's get to these 50 books that you highlight from the book. So when you went out and talked to these different officers in the military, what their recommendations were, and you got the results back, what were you most surprised by in the recommendations? I was pleasantly surprised at the number of novels, the amount of fiction in the list. I was secondly very happy to see some classics of memoir. For example, Ulysses S. Grant's personal memoirs, perhaps the most brilliant, introspective book about character that I've come across. So seeing a lot of, not a lot, but but seeing representative memoirs, biography, and autobiography, very gratifying. And then you see quite a bit of the history that you would sort of expect. And I was also happy to see very few if you will, classic how-to books, very few leadership books like you see in an airport. These were really, I think, very classic books that challenge the reader and deepen the reader and sharpen his or her leadership skills as a result. Yeah, I was surprised too by the number of fiction books on the bookshelf. I mean, what were some of the examples that were on the the recommendation list? Well, the number one book mentioned by multiple four-star admirals and generals, and that that's who we crowdsource this with. These are all four-star admirals and generals. So by definition, people who have led big organizations, been highly successful at it, and as we found are almost universally very strong readers. The number one book mentioned most was a novel, Killer Angels by Michael Shara which is about the Civil War, particularly about the Battle of Gettysburg. And what I love about it is that it it shows you that there are so many different kinds of leadership that can be exercised. Think of the distinction, Brett, between the cerebral, almost cosmic Robert E. Lee and the intense impetuosity of Pickett leading Pickett's charge across that battlefield. Two totally different leaders, but Both of them have a style of leadership. I I think another fantastic novel, it's really a set of novels, is Patrick O'Brien's Sea Novels. Some of the listeners may have seen the film Master and Commander with Russell Crowe. And that film is quite good. And it's a reflection of the first novel in a series of 20 novels about the Napoleonic Wars, which are just brilliant. And then a a last novel to mention, because it's so different than the other two, is uh, Harper Lee's classic, To Kill a Mockingbird, which of course is about integrity. And uh, there are other novels on the list, but those are three that really leap out at me. What do you think that you can get out of a fiction book? You know, these lessons on leadership that you can't say from a, you know, one of those typical leadership books you get at the airport. First and foremost, in a, a work of fiction, 
you get to step into another time and place. And, and here, particularly historical fiction is incredibly powerful. Pick up Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire about the Battle of Thermopylae, where the 300 Spartans led by Leonidas are fighting the Persians. To pick up that novel is to step into that desperate battle and to, to feel with your bones the challenges of leading 300 Spartans in what they know will be their last mission. They won't come back. They know that. How do you lead men in that setting? Or back to To Kill a Mockingbird, putting yourself in the footsteps of Atticus Finch, small town lawyer in the deep South who defends an African-American and, and endures all that comes from doing so. So first and foremost with a novel is you get to jump into another time and place. Secondly, Brett, you can say to yourself, well, what would I do in that setting? It's almost like a simulator of leadership where you can think about how you would deal with the challenges. Here, a good example would be A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain, where an engineer goes back in time a thousand years. By definition, he's the smartest person on the planet Earth. He knows everything because he's got a thousand years of knowledge that he's taken back with him, but nobody believes him. He's got a leadership challenge. So how do you convince that very distant world to come along with you? And you put yourself in those positions. And then Secondly, I, I think books, novels that are historical fiction give you an enormous sense of history, which is very helpful to leaders. It actually uh, didn't make the top 50, but a book that is often mentioned, a series of books, are the Flashman series by George MacDonald Fraser about a British army officer in the 19th century. They're highly entertaining, but they're also extraordinary little gems of history. Flashman ends up at the, the Indian Sepoy Mutiny. He ends up at the Charge of the Light Brigade. He's at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And these are meticulously researched. Great deal of history comes out of that. So I'd say for those two reasons, novels have a unique value that go above and beyond a work of nonfiction. Yeah, I, I can attest to the historical fiction being a great way to learning history. Because once it's put in narr a narrative form, like you're more likely to remember it. That's how I know about the Gettysburg, Battle of Gettysburg is Killer Angels. Yeah, it's a fabulous book. Another novel that was very high on our list is called Once an Eagle by Anton Myrer. And that's a, a novel about Vietnam. And to understand Vietnam and the psychology of the army in Vietnam, that novel, uh, Once an Eagle, is uh, highly, highly recommended. Yeah, my father-in-law enjoys that book. And he actually just lent me the copy of that. And I saw it on the list. I'm like, all right, I got it's a sign. I need to read this book now. You'll enjoy it. So as you said earlier, biographies, memoirs make up a big portion of the list. What were some of the – you mentioned Ulysses S. Grant, his uh, memoirs. The best. Yeah, that's a memoir. And, and this is a, kind of a tragic personal story. So Grant has finished up his presidency, which was rocked by corruption scandals toward the end. And then he contracts throat cancer. And he knows that his wife will be destitute because he's been in public service his whole life. He's never made any money. And despite the whiff of scandal, he never profited personally at all. And so he was essentially penniless but he was able to secure a contract. And so as he's dying of throat cancer, he writes these memoirs and they're just gorgeously written. They, they take you through his 
life and career. And they're deeply, deeply personal. And I think shaded by the fact that he knows his own end is coming. It's a, it's a beautiful read. And it, it also is full of lessons for uh, how, to, how to lead truly big organizations and really how to be the president of the United States. Was there another biography that you saw get recommended over and over again or memoir? Yeah, I think we saw many, many recommendations that came in for a book called Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin which is less a memoir. It's, it's actually a work of history looking at Lincoln's cabinet. But its powerful story is that of creating uh, teams and building teams. And in, in doing so, Dor- Doris Kearns Goodwin tells the story of all the senior members of Lincoln's cabinet. That was just a beautifully realized book about people and leadership. Are there any military strategy books on the list that you think civilian leaders might get something out of if they read it? I I think the classic there is uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And Sun Tzu was an ancient philosopher warrior who tells the the story of of how to be in challenging situations. And it's not a a book about how to line up uh, military formations the way, say, Clausewitz's On War is. The Art of War is really about being clever. The greatest battle you ever win is the one you never actually fight. It's about deception. It's about uh, causing your enemy to, to be off balance. I think there are enormous lessons for people in really all walks of life from Sun Tzu as a as a military writer. On war, I would not recommend for the common reader. That's a classic Prussian, how to put your war fighting staff together, much less of the right kind of things. In terms of a, a, a book that has a lot of military, but I think transcends that, is, is a book by Sir John Keegan called The Mask of Command, which examines uh, different leaders under very stressful circumstances who are going into battle. And the lessons that Keegan draws out of that, I think, are very applicable to everything from your family situation. Uh, you know, you're a leader bred in your family. So is your wife, I'm sure. But you, you have to also use those lessons across the world of business. Interestingly, in Keegan's book, he looks at the Duke of Wellington, who won at Waterloo. He looks at Ulysses S. Grant. He looks, and this may surprise you, but he looks at Adolf Hitler. How was Hitler so successful? He calls him the false hero, but it, it's a very, very competently done book that brings military strategy to uh, to the reader in a way that would apply for anybody. So you mentioned uh, you were pleasantly surprised by the the dearth of leadership you know, quote unquote leadership yeah. books, but did did some make the list and do you think they deserve to be there? I, I do. One that I, I think is a very good book and, and sort of created a, almost a cult industry is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Steve Covey. And it's a very practical book. In, in those leadership books, I like practical. And, and I think that uh, Covey talks about how you build trust, how you organize your day, how you reward others. It's it's a very functional kind of book, and that made it. And then I, I think just a very interesting kind of crossover book is written by an 
an old-time chief staff of the Army, the leader of the U.S. Army, a guy named Gordon Sullivan. And the the book has a great title. It's Hope is Not a Method, What Business Leaders Can Learn from America's Army. And that one, I think, is a kind of classic leadership book, but it's very sensibly written and really picks up this theme that we've talked about here today of what can civilians take away from military-style leadership. So now most of the leaders, as you said, the cohort were older because they're four-star generals or admirals. Right. So they're going to be, what, in their 40s and 50s, 60s? Um, probably in their 50s as, as four-star officers. They'll be in their early to mid-50s typically. So uh, did you ask any younger officers what they're reading? And if so, how does it differ from the older officers? We, we absolutely did. And one of the chapters in the book is exactly that. It's called, What Are Young Leaders Reading? And, you know, as you'd expect, there are some pretty significant differences between what the, uh, the more senior leaders read and what younger leaders read. And I'll, I'll give you a couple examples of books that made the young leaders list that I think probably didn't have a good chance at making the senior list. But then I'll tell you some books that were on both lists. So memoir, as opposed to uh, Ulysses S. Grant, the memoir that we heard a lot about was by Robert Gates, his book, Duty. He was, of course, former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA. In terms of history, we saw a book by Max Boot called Invisible Armies, which is about special forces, which again is something you would expect uh, from junior officers. We saw The New Digital Age by Eric Schmidt, the head of Google. We saw Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. We saw The Road to Character by David Brooks. So None of those were on the senior list because, you know, the senior folks are maybe a little bit less oriented toward that kind of tech world, if you will. And then on the junior officer list, there were some truly quirky outliers, a book called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace, uh, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. I think The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad was on the list. Let me tell you three books that made both lists. And, And you mentioned, Brett, that you'd read one of them, and it's Killer Angels was on both lists, The Battle of Gettysburg. The book I talked about a minute ago, Gates of Fire, was on both lists. Master and Commander, about that 19th century sea captain in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, was on the list. So there were a handful of books that made both lists, but as you would expect, and you would kind of hope, because you hope a new generation is coming along with new ideas, the younger leaders had different books. And that's the beauty of the leader's bookshelf, the book, you get a you get a look at both. So besides this list of books recommended by military leaders, there's there's lots of lists in the military. There's like a culture, like you said, there's this culture of reading and there's also this culture of reading lists in the military. Why do you think lists are a, a powerful tool in directing or, you know, in improving your reading? Uh, first, because they help you organize. Gives Second, because it gives you a goal. You can say, maybe I'm not going to read every book on this list, but I'm going to read 10 of the books on this list this year. Thirdly, it's a list that has been curated. It's been selected by people who have read a lot. Fourthly, it's probably been crowdsourced, just like our book is crowdsourced among senior four-star officers. All of those lists are crowdsourced out to groups of people, both the junior and senior people. 
And fifth and finally, because of the ability to take a title and pop it into Google, you can read reviews of the book. You can read a summary of the book. One of the things we include in the Leader's Bookshelf, as you know, is a a short summary of the book. And then we try and extract those leadership lessons from each of the books. So I think for all those reasons, lists make a lot of sense. And then let's face it, the military is nothing if not organized. We're famous for our checklists. If you want to land an airplane in the military, you're going to go right down a checklist. If you're going to take a submarine and take it down to depth, you're going to work off a checklist. If you're going to launch a missile, you're going to work off a checklist. So military people are used to working off lists. And I think, frankly, so are a lot of civilians. They're organized, and and it's a good way to put structure in reading. Is there any place people can go to see some of these lists, or they just need to Google? If you Google Department of Defense reading lists, you will see uh, many of these pop up. And uh, I would caution the general listener that many of them are very specific to the command. In other words, if you look at the chief staff of the Army's reading list, it's going to be really Army heavy. Same with Navy, same with Air Force. If you look at the reading list for the commander of U.S. Southern Command, which is everything south of the United States, I held that position before I was the Supreme Allied Commander over in NATO. And my reading list there had an awful lot of titles about Latin America and the Caribbean, South America. So just be mindful that those reading lists are going to be pretty specialized. And that was part of why we wanted to do the Leader's Bookshelf, to generate something that was very broadly based, not tied to a particular service or a particular geographic area or particular time frame, but was something that could be very approachable for the general reader. So as you put together this this book list and you were organizing your book, The Leader's Bookshelf, what were the big leadership lessons that you kept seeing over and over again in all the books that people recommended? Yeah. Number one is good leaders are good communicators. And you see that again and again in, in everyone from an Abraham Lincoln to Ulysses S. Grant to Napoleon to Winston Churchill. Good leaders have to be able to communicate. And you can pick up a lot of tips on how to do that by reading the books in the reader's books. Secondly, good leaders build teams. We mentioned Doris Kearns Goodwin in the team of rivals. Good leaders aren't afraid to have very talented people who aren't always in agreement working for them. Old saying, Brett, is that A quality people hire A quality people. B quality people hire C quality people. Why? Because they're threatened by those very talented individuals a truly great leaders build A teams. And here I'd look at the book Truman by David McCullough to look at how President Truman built his team, as well as the book I mentioned earlier about Lincoln's cabinet. And then thirdly, again and again, you see that leaders are innovators. Leaders want to try new things. And you see that in the fiction, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. That's all about invention and innovation. You see it in memoirs, Dwight Eisenhower's crusade in Europe, how he turned the strategic issues on their head in terms of decisions about where he would take things on. Ender's Game, which is a science fiction novel about cyber war. It's all about innovation, invention, and ideas. I'd I'd say those three things kept coming back again and again. And then in every single book on the list, you hit the 
the need for integrity, the need for character. Again, that's why my current book project, which will be out uh, in 19, in about a year, is about character. The voyage of character is what I'm calling it. And I think every one of these 50 books talks about the need to be truthful, to have integrity, to be civil, the qualities of character that we ought to admire the most and, and sadly are not always in evidence in today's leaders, I must say. Well, we'll have to have you come back on the show when your new book comes out. Admiral James, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Been my pleasure, Brett, and happy reading. Thank you. My guest today was Admiral James Devridis. He is the author of the book, The Leader's Bookshelf. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And if you want to learn more about his book and his work in our show notes with links to all the books that he mentioned, head over to our show notes at aom.is slash leadersbookshelf. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or two. That's how the show grows word of mouth. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.